please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, our uh, reading for this evening will begin in 5.18 and we'll go through 6.9 and we'll focus especially on the, uh, the household code which begins in 5.22. In coming weeks I would like, if the Lord permits, to spend time unpacking this this household code that deals with these relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, but it's appropriate also to, to consider the whole household code together and its, its function in the text and in the book, and so this, uh, this evening we'll, we'll simply um, not be getting into the particulars of, of how these relationships interact with one another, but simply the fact that there is a significant por- portion of the book of Ephesians that is given over to this household, these household relationships. Uh, 21 verses, uh, almost a full chapter's worth of the book is set, up, uh, set apart for uh, this household uh, instruction. So with that in mind, please give your careful attention to the reading of God's word. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service, as to the Lord, and not to men 
knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same thing to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for the instruction of your word. We thank you for the common aspects of life, the aspects of life which seem so familiar to us to which it addresses, the common relationships of marriage and children and and employment. We ask that you would give us understanding by your Holy Spirit as we seek more and more to conform our lives, particularly in these relationships, after uh, the pattern of life which you would have for us. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. What does the Christian household have the potential to be? The Christian household has the potential to be a place where husband and wife are so drawn to one another by love and choice and experience such friendship between themselves that what one wants, the other chooses also, and what one says, the other maintains in silence as though he had said it himself. Where all good and evil is held in common, the good all the happier, the adversity all the lighter, because shared by two. An evaluation of married life uh, from over or roughly 500 years ago. And yet as we think about this description of uh, the joys that can, can be had in marriage, we recognize that the Christian household unfolds even beyond just what has been described, that as those husband and wife uh, come to one another in marriage, that there's some deep, mysterious uh, thing that happens where a soul that didn't exist comes into existence for eternity, and which is destined either for eternal anguish or joy. An incredible mystery where where somehow a child is knit together in a marriage and and comes uh, into the world. A child where, by God's grace, raised in the fear of the Lord, will be brought to everlasting and unspeakable bliss. The Christian household has the potential to be a place where sons who grow up in the fear of the Lord learn to visit widows in their affliction and to have mercy on the poor and to enforce justice in the community around them. The Christian household has the potential to be the training ground for young daughters who grow up to show mercy to strangers and to have compassion on refugees and to open their homes to the homeless. It is the place where as these daughters grow up, they themselves become mothers and then speak the gospel and the saving news of Jesus Christ to their children, even while they nurse at the breast. The Christian household has the potential to be one link in a chain of households that spans millennia of households that call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. 
Though all society be in shambles all around, a Christian marriage has been blessed by God to have an inner vitality that can spring forth again and rebuild from the ashes. What does the Christian household have the potential to be? As we consider the Christian household this evening, I would like to uh, address a few observations from uh, from the, this household code in its entirety. And, and one of the features I want to pick up on is that the Christian household reflects a greater Christological reality in all of its aspects. And because of that, we should then conform our relationships in these households uh, to that, that uh, Christ-like standard. So household relationships are created after the pattern of Christ's relationship to the church, and therefore we seek to conform our households after that, that heavenly pattern. So first, some observations. First, note that these household relationships in, in our text, Paul brings back again and again to Jesus Christ. As he instructs wives, he says to them in verse 22, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so he's going to begin with the, the creational and the creepily marriage, but then he's going to move over to the Christological, Christ's relationship to the church, and then he'll talk about that. But then he's going to move back again to the creational and make application to the marriage. But then as he's thinking about marriage, it's going to draw him back to think about Christ and the church again. And back and forth and back and forth, Paul is going to, uh, to move from one to the other because there's this close connection between them. So, so just look with me briefly through the text. Verse 22, uh, wives subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, creational to Christological. 23, back to the creational, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of her. Again, the, the transition. But as the church is subject uh, to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Back from the Christological to the creational. Husbands, love your wives. Back to the creational. Just as Christ also loved the church. Back to the Christological. And it, so it is all throughout this text. This, this back and forth because there's this intrinsic structure to marriage that reflects Jesus Christ's relationship the church. Notice that Paul is not, as he is developing uh, this relationship, is not saying, how can I describe Christ's relationship to the church? Well, it's kind of like marriage. Here's this thing that already existed, and it happens to exhibit a few convenient uh, similarities. It's kind of like that. But as Paul will get to in verse 32, he will say, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church as he recalls the creation of man in Genesis. So that from the very beginning of creation, the creation of mankind as male and female has always been intended as a representation of a greater Christological reality. That the creation of mankind as male and female and brought together in marriage has always been about Jesus, even if the people entering into that institution don't acknowledge it. Uh, 
Moving on to the other relationships, uh, we, we see that Paul still uh, speaks about these other relationships as also uh, being connected to Jesus Christ. From early on in the epistle, Paul developed the idea of being children of the Father. In uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That what is a son? It is uh, something that Jesus Christ has made us in relationship to the Father. In verse 14, the Spirit is, has been given as the pledge of our inheritance. Again, describing the church's relationship to the Father through Christ as one of sons who receive an inheritance. And so even the, the natural begetting of sons and daughters in this world itself reflects a greater transcendent reality in Jesus Christ. And so also is the case of masters and slaves. Notice what Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 6. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. But then, notice what he says in verse 9. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So that there are masters according to the flesh on earth, but there is also a master who is in heaven, who is master over both human earthly masters and human earthly slaves alike. And he shows no partiality in this relationship. And so that even these, uh, the, this relationship of, of master and servant itself reflects a greater Christological reality. Now why point all of this out? It's not just an interesting tidbit that, oh, there's this connection between the earthly and the heavenly, and then we, we move on. But we should recognize, rather, that the, the church and then the microcosm of the household interact and interface with each other, and they mutually build one another up. That the heavenly household of God and the earthly household of God are not uh, sealed off from one another with this static resemblance, but that they interface with each other and they help build each other up. Consider how the household, uh, how God uses the household for the benefit of the church. Uh, through ordinary households that God propagates the covenant community. Before the fall, God commanded mankind to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth to form households. And yet after the fall into sin, God did not discard that purpose and, and say, let's do something totally different and unrelated to the building of, of households now. Uh, forget the whole having children thing. Rather, he re-emphasizes the importance of having children and promises that it will be through the seed of the woman that the Savior will be born. And throughout uh, the Old Testament, God uses the household structure to propagate the covenant community. Abraham, the father of a multitude, his, his own name has that, uh, that household quality uh, built into it. And Abraham's offspring, his family, uh, Jacob's family, growing into a nation 
And so at last the Messiah comes. Recognizing that the Messiah does not uh, come into this world through ordinary generation, that he is begotten uh, in the womb of the Virgin Mary and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that the household itself does not save itself, but it requires an external act of God to come and enter in. But still we appreciate the way that God has used and worked through households throughout uh, the Old Testament and even through the New Testament today, that this is one of the ordinary ways that God raises up more Christians uh, for salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, is through the ordinary means of getting married, having children, and raising them in the fear of the Lord. But the church also serves the household and builds up households. In the book of Acts, we see God using the church to evangelize not just individuals, but whole households that come to faith. And passages like ours in Ephesians show the household their true meaning. They teach households what they are really all about. They come to troubled marriages and show them what marriage really is all about, Jesus Christ and the church. And through the scriptures, the church is able to provide to households instructions on how they are uh, to be uh, reformed after the pattern of Christ. <coughs> so, we ought to desire to build Christian households. Before moving on to application, uh, just one, one other observation, and that is the order of these relationships in a Christian household. It's not just that there are th uh, three pairs of, of relationships, but that there's an order to the Christian household. The first relationship that Paul addresses is marriage. And that's because the rest, all other household relationships are going to grow out of and stem from that first uh, primal relationship between man and woman in marriage. Second relationship is the natural consequence of marriage, children, that ordinarily marriages are to lead to children. And then thirdly, after that, there is an economic relationship between master and slave, that the household becomes fruitful, that it becomes productive, that it has an endeavor, that it, that it uh, interacts and takes dominion over the world and it draws into its orbit even those who do not have a blood relationship to the family. And so we will uh, be taking up uh, these relationships in weeks to come, but before we can address each one specifically, we need to ask the question, are these, before you can ask the question of how are people going to relate within a household, we need to ask the question, is there even a household to begin with? in the first place. Before we can ask the question, how should husbands and wives relate to one another, we need to ask the question, are there even going to be husbands and wives who get married anymore? Before we can ask the question of whether or not uh, parents will raise their children in the fear of the Lord and whether children will respect their parents, we may need to have to ask the question, will the marriages that do take place even be open to further life arising from them. 
And before we can ask how do servants and masters interact with each other or within the household, we will need to ask the question, is the household even a productive place? So first, uh, the question of marriage. Are there even any marriages? In 1950, the median age for young people to get married uh, for women was 20 years of age. And presently, it's about uh, 28 years of age for women. For men, it was 23, and now it's over 30. So the median age of first marriage has steadily climbed over the decades. And that by itself might not be too bad if all of those people who were delaying getting married did all, in fact, eventually get married, albeit a little bit later in life. However, the overall rate of marriage is declining. 29% of all U.S. households in 2022 were single-person households, more than double what it was in 1960. The uh, percentage of the population uh, of, of adults that have never married has increased from 23% to 34% from 1950 to present. And roughly one in four children in the U.S. live in single-parent homes. That number go grows closer to one in three children when two-parent homes, but where the parents are unwed or there are other adults uh, who are not wed to each other uh, are concerned. So we have a, a question of, are there even going to be marriages that take place? And I should, before going further, make, make a caveat here, recognizing that there are those who are, in fact, called to a life of celibacy. Uh, <coughs> those, uh, that idea is addressed in other passages in Scripture. It's something of a, uh, one, one pastor calls it the, the heroic exception. And so for another place, another time, we can take up that. But for the, as, as a general rule, most people are going to be called to marriage. There are, there are heroic exceptions. But generally speaking, people will be called to marriage. And so if you are one of those uh, heroic exceptions, uh, do not feel unduly burdened that you are not living a life pleasing to God when in fact he has called you precisely to the condition that you are in. <coughs> Our children are getting older without marrying. Fewer and fewer people are marrying. How can we address this problem? It may be a complex issue, but the scriptures provide us with uh, wisdom and guidance. And one thing that the scripture offers to us in that wisdom is parental involvement in helping their children become settled in marriage. This is the cultural practice that we see over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Abraham sends his servants to find a wife for Isaac. Isaac sends Jacob to his relatives to find a wife. Laban ensures that Leah gets married despite her uh, handicap of uh, having weak eyes. Naomi says to Ruth, should I not find rest for you, my daughter? And Samson says to his parents, uh, get her for me, uh, with respect to the Philistine woman. And there is the way that scripture speaks about giving or not giving your sons and daughters 
to other people in there. Now, somebody might object and say, well, <coughs> that's just a cultural practice. Uh, should we really take uh, things we read in the Old Testament and, and make them normative for today? I'm not suggesting that we try to reduplicate exactly what the scriptures uh, describe in the Old Testament. But we should recognize that when there's a widely practiced uh, cultural practice, that there's often a creational principle behind it with your mind. And so you can think back to the Garden of Eden and the creation of the first man and the first woman. And Adam doesn't get for himself a wife. But God creates Eve from the rib of the man, and he brings the woman to the man whom he has created and gives to him to break a seemingly creational principle. And as a creational principle, it is also a Christological principle, that this is what God the Father does for us in his Son, Jesus Christ, that he arranges a marriage. In Ephesians 1.4, we read that God the Father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. The Father chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless. And now Paul again picks up that language of holy and blameless as he's describing what Christ has done for the church, his bride. So as Christ comes into the world, he comes to the people whom God has chosen the people that God gives to the Son. And again, as we go to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, a passage we cannot come to too often, we see that the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven from God, prepared, adorned as a bride for her husband. Just as in the first creation, God brought the woman to the man, and the man rejoiced, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So in the new creation, there will be that presentation from God of the bride to the son. And what will it be to hear Christ rejoicing over the church in that day? And so we can recognize that this is something that uh, is, a, is a creational principle. It's going to come to expression in, in a variety of different cultural ways. But we should be reminded that parents have uh, a responsibility to help see their children settled in marriage. What might that look like in our context? It's going to vary drastically depending on the child and the situation. It's going to be different for a child who's dependent and still living at home versus a child who is independent and out of the home. It's going to be different for a son and for a daughter. And it's going to be different, perhaps, based on the quality and characteristics of the individual young person. For some, they may have a daughter who has to beat off her suitors with a stick because everyone wants her hand in marriage. And the parent's involvement may simply be saying something like, now don't drive off Freddie too hard, Mama. He's a nice boy, after all. Or it may look like approaching your son and telling him, I know that you have this relationship with this girl. I know you think that you could never, ever feel this way about another girl ever again. But she does not respect you at all. 
And if this continues, it's going to be a major source of contention throughout your life. It may mean equipping your children when you see them lagging behind uh, developmentally, lacking a maturity, and helping them develop those characteristics that they need so that they can uh, uh, enter into the responsibilities of being a husband or a wife. Or perhaps it may mean adding a line item to the family budget that reads, uh, funds to help the young newlyweds get on their feet in a society which makes it very difficult for young people to get married. So, are there going to be any Christian marriages where are people who are able to walk in wisdom and to recognize when our children are called and, and have the constitution for marriage, parents ought to be involved and help them towards that end. Then within marriage, we have another question. Are those marriages which do form even going to be open to the possibility of life? The ordinary progression is from marriage to children in our passage, and this is, uh, this is a natural uh, design by God. Uh, marriage relations are inherently procreative, even if they do not result every time in procreation. And again, before continuing further, it's appropriate to make another caveat. There are those uh, couples who struggle with infertility, and this is a very painful experience. And I'm not addressing those couples that would desire children and who would, would love to welcome a child into the world, but rather speaking to that group which is uh, systematically, willfully, and perpetually through the entirety of your marriage uh, thwarting the natural end for which marriage was created in the absence of some legitimate reason. Again, we can think about the society around us. The fertility rates in the United States in 1800 was seven. Now we have to also remember that there was also a high infant, or higher infant mortality rate then as well. But now in the present, the fertility rate is 1.78 birds per woman less than two, even in an ideal society where uh, nobody died, everybody got up, uh, grew up to be married and to have two children, that would be a stable society. And we are below 1.8. So as we think about the place of children within the Christian household, uh, it would help us to understand that uh, we can avoid uh, extremes. I don't find it to be a requirement in scripture to have the maximum number of children that the wife is physically capable of bearing. But it's also not the case that ordinarily there would be a situation where the couple willfully hinders uh, any future life from entering into the family. Rather, husbands and wives should, in the absence of extenuating circumstances, desire the realization of their procreative potentiality to the degree that God equips them and blesses them. So there is uh, a ditch on uh, both sides of the road. You could say there's, there's those who, who take no prudential considerations about the well-being of their children, 
but then there are also on the other side those who, who would, would systematically prevent children from ever entering the world. And as a society, I think we tend towards the error that is on that side of the road. Someone may say, but what if the parents are poor? Can poor people have children? I think two problems with this statement. One is that it begins to view children as a luxury commodity that only the rich should have. But secondly, there's a danger of viewing our children in terms of primarily the lens through which we view our children is through the category of economic liability. It's like a, a word association game. I say, circus, what do you think of elephants? And you say to someone, if I say, Another child, what do you think of? Economic liability. That's not the way that scripture gives us to think about our children. And we can recover a, a view of children that sees them as blessings that come from God. And so we can look at the possibility of pain and suffering in the life of a child and say, yes, they're going to be born into a world where they will suffer much, where there is misery and sorrow. But these are children who, by God's grace, belong to a faithful Savior who is able to make good on every tear that they shed and bring them to unspeakable, unimaginable, eternal bliss forever. And that he is good, and he promised to do so. So having considered the need for Christian households to begin with marriage, to continue with the having of children, and we come to that last relationship, the economic relationship of slaves and masters, slaves helping the, the household economy. And I would observe that uh, in the text, this, this view of, of a household that is, is stressed is one in which, which presupposes that the household is a productive place. Marriage spills over into children, but beyond children, it spills over into uh, taking dominion on the earth and being fruitful in, in other ways. Have you considered that during the week it's possible for a man to spend more time with a woman who is not his wife and work alongside her pursuing a common goal and that he spends more time more of his waking hours with her than he does with his own life at home or pursuing any common good at home with his wife or vice versa for women that women may go out into the workplace and they may work alongside another man who is not her husband and there is there's more economic solidarity between them than there is between her and her own husband. We live in a society where production has been removed from the household, and in many ways we can be thankless for that. We would be ungrateful beasts if we did not uh, uh, 
express our gratitude for God for all of the incredible, marvelous blessings that have come about through industrialization and through our modern economic system, that we should be thankful for all that God has provided for us in this way. But nevertheless, we can still recognize when there are things that are, are suboptimal as well and where the work of a husband and wife together uh, the work of the husband has become alienated from the work of the wife. And the creation mandate is significant that the command to take dominion over the earth is given to a married couple, to a male-female dyad. It's not given to the human race in the abstract considered as so many isolated individuals who have nothing to do with each other, and they go take dominion over the earth. It's not given to a group of 100 men who have organized themselves into a workers' union. It's given to a, a married couple who together come alongside one another and who participate in one, one another's lives and who lead a, a fruitful life together. Wife standing beside her husband, husband initiating what his wife cannot initiate, and wife consummating and glorifying what her husband cannot consummate and glorify. This has led to an impoverished view, uh, the, the, the alienation of the, the work of husband and wife from each other has led to an impoverished view of marriage, to the point where we may view marriage as uh, two people who provide each other with emotional and sexual satisfaction and nothing more. But the, the, the vision of the, the early, the first chapter of Genesis is where husband and wife come alongside each other and have a, a one flesh union that is not just the marriage act, but which is uh, all, of, all of their life together, joined together in one purpose. And so how, as we seek to build a, a robust Christian household, ought we to think about uh, this in our own context? I'm not going to suggest that we try to just get back to the good old days. We can't go back. History has moved on. It has progressed, and this is a gift from God that, that it has uh, progressed as it has. Nor am I suggesting that <coughs> everyone quit their job to start a family business. I think that, for many of us, would lead to disastrous consequences. But to consider whether or not there are ways that we can make our households not merely places of consumption, but where the family comes together to be productive in some way. So that if the family eats 21 meals a week that come to the table from the freezer by way of the microwave, perhaps it could become one meal a week, a family effort to work together making dinner from less pre-prepared materials. Or as we think about how one generation becomes isolated from the next in terms of their work, we can consider that mothers or grandmothers can pass on certain skills to their children and granddaughters, how to knit or how to sew. That rather than just fixing the plumbing himself, dad can call his son away from the television or from his phone screen for a minute and bring him alongside him and teach him this is how we repair things in the household. Or perhaps it may be tending a small vegetable or herb garden as a family. 
some productive project that brings the household back together such that that, that household, beginning with the, the male-female dyad and marriage, and then expanding into another generation, begins as a household to come together and take dominion over the earth. So as we do these things, you will find that households are, are enriched, but that this is also beneficial to the church, uh, should God bless it. That this is a part of how Christi uh, Christian children are brought up in the next generation. This is how husbands and wives live together in harmony with one another. And that all of the, the activity of a household can then be oriented towards the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for uh, Christian households, and we pray that you would multiply them. We pray for our children. We pray for those who desire deeply to be married, that you would provide for them spouses. We pray for those who desire deeply to have children, that you would open the womb. We pray for uh, those households which find a strain and an alienation in their relationships, that they would be able to harmonize and joy as they serve you and seek you together as a household. We pray these things in Jesus' name.